Thanks for tuning into the podcast, everyone. This week's episode is brought to you by the famous Area 420. All summer long, they will be holding events at the infamous train cars, starting off on May 26 with Summer of Savings Kickoff Barbecue. There will be various vendors on the site, free food and beer, and best of all, the networking available. All of this is going to be happening on May 26, 3 p.m. to 7 p.m. in Moffitt, Colorado at Area 420. Then, on June 10th from 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. in the San Luis Valley, Moffitt, Colorado, there's going to be a seed and genetics fair. This will be a great time to get your last-minute genetics to put outdoors for the season right before Father's Day. There are still spaces available for vendors and food trucks. For more information, there will be links in the description for vendor information. Make sure to select Brainstrap as your event contact and tell them you heard everything on Reefer the Reefer with Little Farmer. So welcome back. Welcome back to the podcast, everyone. Reefer the Reefer with your host, Little Farmer. I'm here with Andre Grossman. He is one of the men behind the scenes from back in the day. Growing up, I would uh, go to the grocery store or actually where I grew up. We would not even find the magazine High Times where I grew up because it was something that they wouldn't even put on the shelves. I grew up in the Bible Belt. So, oh, we can't have marijuana on the shelves and magazines. So even it would be going to places like New York or going to bigger cities or sometimes the airport and you would see high times magazine and you would see some of the prettiest pictures and some centerfolds and people hanging them up. And Andre is one of the men behind a lot of these pictures that a lot of people don't know about. It's kind of hard to find information about him on the internet. He's uh, not, not too uh, out there on the social media. So he's kind of a hard man to get and kind of a hunt unheard hero of the photography business when it comes to cannabis. And I'm highly excited to have you on the show. We met down at Area 420 here in Colorado. You were down there taking some pictures and uh, Matt uh, Brainstrap hooked us up and introduced us. And then uh, I think I ran into you in Denver also at a couple get togethers and then we uh, were down to Area 420, and Matt had you on his show, and I helped you get all set up and heard you talking with Kyle Cushman and telling some of the stories. And I uh, asked if you'd be on the show, and you said yes, and I'm highly excited uh, to hear some of these stories and how you got to where you are where you were and where you're at now. Um, we talked a little bit, and you told me how you got into cannabis and how you grew up in East Germany, and you moved to West Germany before the wall was put up and then you uh, graduated from high school and then I'll kind of let you go to the rest of it here. But um, how did you get into cannabis and when was the first time that you actually smoked it and were like, oh, this is for me? Okay. Hi, everybody. <laughs> Thanks for having me on your show. And yeah, let's uh, start from the beginning. I'm <clears throat> born in 1955 in what used to be then East Germany, but I was only one year old when I already moved with the family to the west of Germany. So I grew up in the uh, capitalist, well-to-do West. Uh, and um, there was like uh, 
obviously some beer drinking during growing up, but there wasn't much smoking at this time. And I think I only um, saw my first tiny uh, dice-sized piece of hashish when I was 17 years old. At school, somebody had it. Look, what is this in the locker room? And he says, like, okay, next weekend we try to smoke some of it and had the, uh, you know, teenage nonstop uh, giggle experience <laughs> that sort of then made it like a priced thing to do that with some friends, have some hash when later I think it took us like a good two hour drive to go to Amsterdam at night to the dam rack was their big uh, plaza in center of town where you just uh, we're talking now about uh, late seventies or early seventies even where you hit up some black guys in Amsterdam for hash and you could um, I guess uh, buy a gram for $20, but that's all we would uh, get between five guys and crammed into a car and then drive back to Germany, go home and then, you know, get fucked up from uh, probably like Moroccan hash or something. Is that where it came and, from? Morocco yeah, in, in Europe, Holland like Amsterdam. The... Back then, it was most likely than from uh, North Africa, you know, somewhere. But um, I... Uh, <clears throat> Spent some time after school. I graduated from school when I was like 19, then go to Berlin for two years. And there um, the cannabis uh, use was like, uh, there was hash and then there was like very rarely some uh, uh, good grown bud, but that was really rare. And I... um, Became I, I went to photography school in Germany and I was like 26 years old when I had an opportunity to work for an American photographer in the U.S. in Pennsylvania. Um was working for this um, art photographer who made it in sort of a social documentary style of photography a la Diane Arbus. So that was a, an interesting photographer. And there, like this guy always had like a good um, high quality, uh, often like Thai weed or something there. In he, and he said, here, you can always help yourself. It's right here. And I got more hooked to uh, <clears throat> smoking good pot there um, in my uh, later twenties, there and when I was doing this, uh, I was I was well work as a, f- a print black and white photographs for like uh, museum quality was type. Was it the dark room? Dark room, Printing, yeah, yeah, with the old school. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and made black good, and white, right? yeah. clocked many hours and made good money, and that was sort of fun and. Living in Pennsylvania was uh, two hours away from New York. Was an easy, uh, safe way to get to know New York. You know? Was it Philadelphia you were in? I was um, more like where Easton in Pennsylvania is. Okay. You know where that is about. 
it's not, like not uh, really so I think it's 120 miles straight west of the city okay and then um you know made friends in the city started a little bit uh, with the um photojournalism for German magazines that was pretty okay back then um you'd get like $350 for a day rate if you landed a job with a magazine. And if you had two or three of these a month, then it was, you were already kind of set or something. And I liked um, to photograph people. I like to use a flashlight. Uh, I liked photographing at night in clubs, in social environments and stuff. You and, mentioned to me that even in Berlin, you were in the night scene, you went to the clubs, and that's where you got into the cannabis scene in Berlin was the night scene. And they had not yeah. a rave scene, but they had a night night uh, nightlife that was with music and uh, drugs and dancing. And just, it was Definitely. kind of the counterculture of Berlin at the time back then, if I understood right. Yeah, up to then, I lived pretty much in a more provincial uh, towns. And uh, then that was the first time in the big city. My friends, I lived together with a couple of people. Uh, and this was um, a bit of like the commune style was in uh, back then. And uh, we had like seven, eight people renting one apartment and have a big communal space. And uh, there was um, always sort of drinking alcohol, smoking cigarettes, but also smoking um, Mario, uh, smoking um, hashish mostly, and that was uh, real common. And how became, it, How did you guys consume your hashish? Was it with tobacco? Chillum, chillums, yeah, p- or who goes? Uh, yeah, yeah, right, mostly like. Uh, Chillum or some they um, roll tobacco joints and stuff, you know. Or, like me personally, I prefer to have, like, sometimes you know, poke a needle through a beer felt and then put a, a small lump on the needle tip and keep it lighted and then hold a glass over it and mm-hmm. smoke it like that. That's the know? first way I smoke. Yeah, cash. yeah. And so in in, in Berlin, it was. Uh, pretty common. And then, so being then in um, New York, um, age 26, 27, I was uh, going out. I liked uh, the photograph people. So I go in the nightclubs and somehow um, a little, have very fair skin. So too much sun is not my thing, but like at night, I like the clubs. I like music and, uh, started to make friends in the city that way to met some musicians. They didn't mind having pictures and stuff. So that was kind of a nice thing. I was into taking the uh, break dancing, uh, do the athletic stuff like spinning on their heads or have these dance troops and stuff. I was kind of nice. Uh, I got nice photography there. And uh, one night I was... Uh, taking pictures in a nightclub called the Fun House. That was a big famous club there in the eighties, uh, on the um, in Chelsea. And um, this guy comes up to me and says, "Hey, 
I'm writing a book on these uh, hip hop kids here and uh, show me your photos and maybe we can use some of the photos in my book. And that was a start of a pretty long cooperation. Um, that guy was Steve Hager and he later became the editor in chief of High Times magazine. So we did a lot of photography for the magazine uh, through that contact. I met all the other guys then. And later, um, one of the things that I always thought was kind of interesting about the working with the High Times guys is when the High Times, Steve Hager had this idea to go to Amsterdam where uh, cannabis was viewed more relaxed and not so uh, super illegal and stuff. People would have coffee shops where you could buy it, smoke it, and uh, be pretty much not bothered. And we wanted to start a cannabis cup in Amsterdam and make um, a competition of who um, has the best cannabis whether this is um, in a coffee shop or um, whether this is like imported hash or all of these things you could get and then uh, meet the local growers, the suppliers of the coffee shops, uh, take pictures there and uh, have competitions who, who's got the best and stuff and have a big um like a party event about it uh, with entertainment. And uh, then um, I continued working with the High Times guys. I had like dozens and dozens of covers and centerfolds. Most of the time, they were um, ideas that were uh, born in the art department at the magazine and then they call me up and say, like, can we come to your studio and set up this and this photo shoot and stuff? And that was um, kind of a nice uh, time, met a bunch of people this way. I did that until about, I think, 2015. Um, by 2015, the magazine was, like, in more serious trouble and they didn't spent money on photo photographers anymore. Mm -hmm. And um, I had other photography jobs. I was uh, work in um, art business, doing art reproductions with large format cameras and light systems and stuff. And um, photograph sometimes um, 50 artworks in a day or so for um, use that was used in galleries or art, art publications. But that was a, a steady job. I, had, I was employed and had health insurance and social security and stuff. Uh, but that also, you know, lasted um, until more recently. Now uh, I'm like uh, basically uh, retired, moved out of New York in 2020, now I live for three years here in uh, Colorado. It's a very nice Colorado, the state of uh, cannabis legalization since 2012. I uh, met some good old friends here again from 
the back days in Amsterdam of the Adam Dunn from the Adam Dunn show uh, introduced me to uh, some of his friends here in the Colorado cannabis scene. I met uh, many growers from the area for 20 where I also met little farmer here and he invited me to come to his place. Now the first time I'm in the central of Rocky mountains, they're snow capped. It's beautiful. I've never seen it. I'm like pretty much in awe. It's gorgeous. Yeah. In the old Western front. Yeah. Near the old gold mining town. Yeah. We're, we're actually in the highest incorporated town in North America. So we're at 10,500 feet here. It is, still cool and cold at night and the snow falls it's um a bunch of moose and bears so hopefully we'll we'll keep keeping our eye out we used to have a dog that would uh sense the the moose and let us know so it was easier to know but if we catch them out here it'd be a good opportunity to get some nice uh scenic outdoor wildlife shots yeah very good maybe we'd go for a moment hiking yeah, we can do that for yeah. sure. If not, just we can drive yeah, up I'll to the top of the pass. Yeah, I'll put my winter jacket on. It's cold outside. We can drive up to the yeah. top of the pass, the highest oh, yeah, point, and cool. see the view from yeah. up there. That'd be nice. Yeah, it's a, it's a nice view. And then, uh, so you had uh, lived in New York during the hip-hop days, during the, the early hip-hop days, was it? The early 80s yeah. point break dancing. It's more before hip-hop. Yeah, and the, like gra- and the graffiti and stuff. Graffiti, you know? yeah, yeah, like the break into electric yeah. boogaloo days. Yeah, yeah I've, I've seen some of your pictures. It's like yeah. the, kind of like the punk rock and the hip hop singing kind of mixing up, or the right with the yeah. with the club scene there. Yeah, there's like the the um, garage rock scene a little bit on the Lower East Side. That's all sort of mixing in and stuff. It, that was interesting. I mean. I would go out almost uh, at least once a week or twice, you know, for some kind of event. Then uh, the um, the uh, guy from the High Times magazine had a uh, had a garage band himself called the Soul Assassins, and they had um, I don't know three four guys, and then sometimes. They had a couple of girls uh, dance up front the band and stuff, and they um, made um, cannabis legalization as sort of like a theme of their songs and stuff. And um, their connection to high times was kind of um, benefited from that. They, the art director would uh, draw album covers for them. And so then uh, me as a photographer, they always like to have the photographer around the thing that makes the flashes and later brings pictures and stuff. And it was a good time. And then sometimes uh, I made a little bit money with the high times. I mean, it was uh, nice. If you had a cover and a centerfold, you'd have $700. So that was not so bad. You know, you just had to see that you hit the cover and the centerfolds uh, with good photos. And then we met some uh, growers. They were growing really good-looking plants where the plant wasn't just green, but also had things like purple pistols and stuff so that we get some exciting, contrasting colors and uh, use like... Um, a decent uh, 
resolution cameras so that they look good when they're blown to a centerfold. Mm -hmm. uh, <clears throat> that it flew for a while, you know, so. Have it, you noticed a difference in what the buds look like from when you first started taking pictures in the plants to now? What have, what have the plants done? Like you said, it, before it was all green, then there's a little color to it. Now, I know there's colors, all types of colors. Have you noticed any difference in the pictures? Yeah, I, <clears throat> one has to say that um, the, the evolution of the marijuana flowers the from the potency and the looks it's just a staggering uh trip um in particular the sophisticated indoor growing made the buds look just so amazing the uh photography of cannabis became also really amazing it's uh, a lot of guys are into photography a lot of plants are into cannabis, so there's definitely one can see this. That also there's like an evolution in the in the technique of the photography as well. Uh, like it's always been kind of a little difficult um, to do very close-up photography, macro photography, microscopic photography. This is sort of it becomes a little more more technical and um, not it's a bit tedious and stuff. So not everybody's into this, but uh, today some, uh, I know at least a handful of um, guys that became really good with the microscopic photography. And that's of course a whole new uh, visual world. You know, mm -hmm. when you see these, uh, if you have a 50 or 100 times magnification of like a trichome gland with the gland heads on top, and stuff that's like um, uh, like out of this world type of um, photos come up, uh, real attractive. If I would uh, put an image that's printed nice as a 16 by 20, uh, nicely framed, I would put that on the wall at any time in my living room and it'd be looking really, really good and stuff. So I'm like, uh, I can, like, that's an exciting thing. I tried some of the um, close-up photography myself. Uh, it's really difficult to do it really good and stuff. So I applaud some of the guys that are doing it. Maybe at some point I might actually get into um, shows of Mario cannabis photography, where it's not just my own photographs, but maybe I'll eventually be able to make an edit of the best cannabis photographers that I come across and do sort of really attractive shows when you source from different photographers, you know, then you can really um, hit another level and of um, juicy looking photo shows or something. And there are n new social spaces in the cannabis industry with all the dispensaries, social spaces, uh, developing, coming up uh, that look great with nice art on the walls and stuff. And, uh, you know, there's things to come and things to look forward to uh, that um, 
event space at the Area 420 where they have these train cars that are already social spaces now. They're beautiful uh, by the Sangre de Cristo Mountains um, next to the Hooper Hot Springs, the Sand Dunes National Park, and of course the Area 420 will have their own dispensary there that you can stop right off the road there and uh, buy cannabis, smoke cannabis products, watch it like and um, see um, photo shows, art shows in those train cars. That'd be really little nice, you know. Yeah, yeah. Like a little gallery. That'd be have nice. Our, have openings, you know, for those mm -hmm. things. And who knows, you know, new life will come there. I mean, definitely on a bunch of weekends during the summer, the 420 events on Friday afternoons. Mm -hmm. always the 420 event in last couple of weeks ago was really nice. And a lot of people showed up. Yeah, I was down there. I think they're having another one here on the 26th of this month. Uh, it's on a Friday, I believe. And uh, yeah, it's a it's a great place to uh, congregate and have a good time with like-minded individuals who have a, have a love for cannabis like we do, basically. And uh, so you mentioned social media sites out there like Instagram. You are on Instagram at agros55, I believe. Yeah. A-G-R-O-S 55. If yeah. anybody wanted to follow you and come by and check some of your pictures that you have available online. Um, and you like Instagram. How do, how do you um, feel about the new cameras making it really easy for anybody like myself to take really good pictures? Because <laughs> I have no experience with cameras, but my phone takes a really nice picture. And everybody's a cannabis photographer now on Instagram. <laughs> yeah, it's, it has two things, you know, of course. Um, to me, uh, being a, a competitive guy or something, this is uh, annoying to a degree. Okay, uh, what? I'm not the only one who can take good pictures. How terrible. But um, the other side is that now we are have an... Real, we get spoiled by an ocean of really good photography because every time the photos are really good when people go, oh, look at this. Where's my camera? I need to take a picture. That's when a picture is a good picture. And then now in most cases when that happens, people have their camera with them. They work very well and stuff, you know. And um, for example, uh one thing I really like, I like um, storms on oceans and seeing the largest waves possible. And now when you are, go on YouTube, you can watch this all day long because every sailor who gets into a storm off of northern Russia or something has uh, his camera when his ship breaks in half or something. You know? mm -hmm. So we get to see all that cool stuff. And it's... Um, in especially in outdoor fields of marijuana, when uh, people go hang out in the sunrise or in the sunset, when it's like beautiful, maybe with some fog or some dew on the mm -hmm. plants, and uh, take spectacular pictures with their iPhone or something, you know, that's great, you know. And uh, well, it just also it proves the the power of the 
of the image, you know, whether it's a photo still image or the moving image, this is a very powerful um, thing, you know, mm -hmm. and everybody loves it and stuff. And um, it's just um, for myself, I wish there was some more uh, paid jobs uh, for myself in photography. So, but uh, maybe the cannabis industry is going to regain a foothold in the next couple of years and uh, find ways how to um, become more, I don't know, just make, make some profit for one, pay less taxes, you know, mm -hmm. and that would be a good thing. And people uh, have a de decent wage for, for decent work, you know, like the way that um, what's so nice about when you go down to the area for 20 there, all these people are uh, growers. They're, very hard working and real dedicated to the quality of cannabis um, at first and foremost. And that's what's ultimately going to uh, make those guys survive because we need some good pot. You know, so. so you've been around some of the best cannabis in the world in Amsterdam, High Times, New York. Um, what are some of the best strains you've ever smoked? What, what do you like to smoke now? If you had a choice, I know you, I know I heard the story about your strawberry cough and you and Kyle Cushman, he had it and you cloned it for a long time and you helped distribute it throughout New York for a while when in your younger days. And it was a very common staple in your grow. Was that one of your favorites to consume personally? Yeah, the strawberry was definitely nice, a nice uh, smoke. Uh, if you grow it carefully, organically yourself, um, uh, give it a good cure, you know, that's that's a good thing. But I would also um, enjoy like really a traditional well-cured hash, you know, in the right environment or something. If you're comfy at home, maybe with some friends. The old or school hash, like not, a, the, not like, the newer hash. Like, yeah, like uh, some somebody brings something from Afghanistan or from Morocco or like a really good hash. But I think um, then you always get surprised by something new. You know, you always have to try out, try around, try a little bit. I like... Really, I like all of these things. Really, I mean, sometimes you run, I run out of really good pot, and then you say like, "Hey, I have some from last year's harvest in this container, and check it out. Oh, it's not so bad, you know. It'll get me over until I meet again one of the guys from 420 years from area 420. Give me some good pot, maybe mad gifts. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but." Um, I don't know what comes to mind. Like, there's always something new also. Do you find there, a difference between the newer herb on the scene and the older? Because everybody's like, oh, yeah, the newer stuff's higher in THC. It's more intoxicating. Do you feel like the older herb was better or the newer herb? Or is it not, not much difference in your mind? I wouldn't, um, I wouldn't take a stand easily there. There's like, I remember when in the 90s and there was always somebody who had the best pot or something. And I would say that during that time, the in 
the high quality indoor prod would um, be the winner of the day uh, there that um, sometimes outdoor would then again blow all the indoor stuff away. There would be cannabis cups in Amsterdam where would you smoke this locally grown uh, stuff in Amsterdam for a week and then all of a sudden somebody shows up and says, oh, I'm coming fresh from the steppes of Romania and here's some outdoor grown and then blows everybody away because it's just has uh, some kind of different outdoor effect or something and grown in the wind and the sun. Uh, it's very nice. I, uh, you know. Yeah, they say the sun gives it a different different terpene profile, different cannabinoid structure and more sesquiterpenes or something like that. They're still debating what the difference is, but the natural sunlight does produce different uh, cannabinoids and terpenes, which give you different yeah. effects, which I've noticed like more body, yeah. more full head to toe, uh, really nice feelings. Really yeah. And then one never stops learning about new findings in growing or consumption. I mean, I uh, was growing myself in New York City until um, about 2018, until I was so um, a bit overwhelmed with the frustrations of growing pot. There's too much paranoia and stuff and too much expenses with electricity and all the fancy grow equipment. And then prices also um, came down over the decades, you know, like I remember a time maybe around 2005 where I actually myself got forked over $6,000 in cash for a pound of primo strawberry pot. And then from there, now you're in Colorado in 2022, mm -hmm. 23, and you couldn't sell a high quality pot for $200 or something, you know? Yes, it's uh, been a big, big change in black market. And it all depends on where, what state you're in now. And then, even where I was at, we would ride up to uh, New York, not me personally, but I know some people from New York that would come down to West Virginia to go to school and they would ride up to New York and buy nickel bags and come back and sell them for $20, $20 each. So it was, or if they could get a pound, it was really cheap and they could come down and triple the money pretty easily. Yeah. And uh, I can imagine the price even got cheaper in Canada. I know a lot of New York would get their herb from Canada, and when it went legal there, it was across the border even quicker yeah. and faster and cheaper. And then uh, here, it used to be 350 an ounce flat back in 2000. Yeah. 350. You couldn't get a break. Yeah. And it, if you wanted yeah. to get a pound, it was like yeah. 3,800 3, almost. Yeah. Something like 3,200. Yeah. If you can get a pound for 3,200, yeah. it was cheap. Yeah. Of primo, primo. Yeah. yeah. And then California and had a bunch of outdoor really great outdoor season probably in 2003 or so and all of that started flooding into here and brought the prices down to about 275 an ounce and then 
uh, I think when I came out here right before they legalized, it was about a 175 an ounce. And now yeah, there is no black market, really. If you're buying something off black market, it's just because you don't want to go to the dispensary or you're just wanting to support a friend or something like that. That's basically the black market here. Mm-hmm. The growers I learned from don't grow anymore because it was just supplemental income for them. And some of them didn't even smoke. Now with the cost of electricity uh, and the price up, there's just no black market. But then that gives a chance for the dispensaries to jack up their prices. And uh, whenever that happens, little bits of black market will will bounce back up. Uh So there is a fluctuation here and there, I've noticed. But it all depends on the taxation. Like you were talking, it's really, really steep. And a lot of these new states. So even in West Virginia, they got medical and there's a couple dispensaries. It's not that good quality. So people are still traveling out of state to go get their, their herb for a cheaper price with better quality. And uh, it's got to be some kind of medium across the country here soon. Hopefully that'll balance it out and got to be a point where the growers can actually make money. And it's around $1,200 a pound would be something that growers could sell their herb for and still make a, a profit here in Colorado or any other state, depending on, it's interesting to hear these numbers for sure. I mean, like um, when it becomes more expensive to produce it, you know, then uh, you can sell it for. Why then do it? You know, this is like uh, that's a lot of people gave up. You know, um, I don't know. Sounds like a bad thing, you know, but maybe it's a good thing if if it uh, if the if if it improves the quality somehow, you know, that uh, the people who are into it are also really into the quality of it, you know, um, which just makes sense, you know. Well, I think the outdoor, like down in Area Four Twenty, there there's going to be more outdoor. So people complain, oh, yeah, these people down there growing all this outdoor tanking the market. And I've heard people say that, like, there's more outdoors, cheaper for them to do it. And sometimes, like, we, we've smoked really good outdoor that blows indoor away. So yeah. sometimes it just doesn't look the prettiest. It might not have the visual yeah. bag appeal, but it's going True. to have higher um, content of certain, certain yeah. things that make you feel better and yeah. more therapeutic. Yeah. And so... The outdoor is going to change the scene. If there's legalization of outdoor grows, it's going to be a whole different ballgame because you can grow more, can be better quality if it's done right, and the prices will be different. It's going to make it even cheaper, and there won't be any electricity. Yeah, this is like one of those real interesting things about the Area 420 as well, that you can... Um, talk there or visit a grower who is doing the most ultra high tech way of aeroponic growing um, of marijuana indoors. And you can sit next to a guy who 500 yards on his, on a different lot away grows 
an incredible outdoor um, field in the ground right there. It's like I met one guy there who already pulled off like five years of uh, big summer harvests with like, um, what do they have sometimes? 2000 plants or something mm -hmm. on uh, there. And they're all like uh, big six foot bushes and stuff or five foot bushes. And it's like good stuff. You know, I uh, even saw um, there at the area 420 buds that top colors They were grown outdoors. They look even better than indoors, or it looked like indoors, you know, mm -hmm. because it's just crystally crazy and big, thick buds and stuff. So it was crazy. You actually came to America when a lot of the American growers were going to Holland because of the drug war laws. And you came to America and lived in New York City during some of the harshest drug wars yeah. laws and It uh, so I got to give you a salute. Thank you for doing that and keeping cannabis alive and yeah, taking thank all you. the pictures you did. You inspired me when I first got into cannabis and seeing some of these pictures. I was man, just some of them were mouth watering. I can't can't lie. Thank you. <laughs> Now that was a one off uh, interesting thing for myself to to um, have to have met the high times guys in order to more or less go back to Europe, go to Amsterdam and see what had realized, what had developed there. That was sort of, was a bit of a shock to me actually, because I thought like, um, well, I have to admit though, in, I lived in New York in the eighties and in the nineties, um, through, uh, 2020, but I have never really, um, gone to the West Coast all that much. I was at some point in the Golden Triangle up there in Willits where when my friend Carl Cushman was living and growing up there. And that was, you know, interesting to see. There was like, um, let's see, when was that? I would say uh, around 2008 or something, I would be go visit um, Oregon, Northern California up there. That was um, uh, nice to see, but it was only like a one week visit. So I never got to like really live there and experience that. That's a whole other, um, that's also, well, of course, the original scenes were, were often were there, you know, that's where a lot of it started. You know? It's a lot more laid back out yeah. in California. But mm -hmm. in that area, it could be dangerous too because all the growers there, especially in yeah. the illegal days. And yeah, the yeah, yeah. No, they have the big stories. And end up missing and oh, you big story. Yeah, somebody's yeah. land that you shouldn't have been on, yeah. and booby traps or whatever out there. Yeah, they had like um, yeah that that serious movie. That's a good movie, uh, Murder Mountain, right? That you know that one. Yeah, I've heard of it, but yeah. I haven't watched it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, there's uh, real stuff going on. I mean. Um, yeah, I've heard of people yeah. here back in the nineties and two thousands getting, getting robbed in black market. And it was back mm. in the day when yeah. nobody would invite you into their garden. Yeah. And if you got invited to somebody's garden, they really trusted you. And, yeah. and it was uh, definitely just a no, no. And yeah. it was people 
getting robbed. And I know you have a story about being in New York that I've heard yeah. you tell that uh, not only was it dangerous from watching out for police and being put in jail, but people in a big city, there's a lot of dangerous people out there. Would you mind telling the story about what happened to you? No, not at all. Uh, and right away, I would like to uh, mention that um, I had to admit to um, being maybe a bit naive in my late 20s coming from Europe uh, to the city. I <clears throat> never had any really bad experiences in my life, uh, never got um never saw much guns throughout my uh, growing up my time in germany only the police had guns in little pouches made of le fancy leather and stuff mm -hmm. you know but um i knew uh, with the marijuana that you had to be a little bit careful you know because of course there were um fairly strict laws about even just one joint or something could send you in a bunch of trouble already or something, at least, you know, if you were young and your family found out that you got caught with marijuana or something, that was like trouble, you know. Mm -hmm. And uh, <clears throat> in New York, we were always in, or in the U.S., you always be careful about not having too much with you if you would carry. You know, you wouldn't, like, if if you were carrying an ounce, you'd already kind of be pretty nervous. And if you were in the subway in New York and you have an ounce of weed in your pocket and it's not wrapped well and it stinks, it's definitely um, a cause of, for concern and stuff. And then... <clears throat> I even never forget at some point where in New York, at some point I met some people that were more um, the dealers of pot, people that would bring in like large amounts of Mexican weed in the old days or something. And meeting these people and it was then <clears throat> sometimes... I would go to a grow and the grower would have a gun in the back of his pants, you know, and you'd be like, oh, wow, here's people now where you uh, see um, this can sometimes be dangerous or something, you know, for real. If you kept sticking around and stuff, you heard being in touch with the high times people, there's always the stories, what happened to other people. People were getting busted for growing and stuff. And I uh, never um, had uh, much problems or something until uh, I did eventually um, move small amounts of uh, pot for friends because I had access to it and then you can sort of hook up friends or something, and then you start to make an extra couple of bucks or something. But you, but it's just friends, so it's like it's nice. It's just bec it's nice because it's with friends. Yeah, because I stuff. never really sold <clears throat> to strangers. Right, I never sold on, to make money. I would, like on a street corner, I was one. I would get an yeah. ounce and give three 
quarters to a friend yeah. and keep keep a quarter for myself yeah. at a discounted rate, basically, so I could smoke yeah. cheaper. That's a, what yeah. I did. And then, <clears throat> and then, uh, one thing that I tried to stay away from in New York, uh, but I did do it at some point to throw a really big party in my apartment. I had a nice loft at some point <clears throat> down by the Brooklyn Bridge on Broadway and um, had just um, published a photo of a really nice marijuana plant on the Sunday cover of the New York Times. I mean, the Sunday magazine of the New York Times. And um, I threw a party in my apartment where I just told all the friends, Hey, tell all your friends and stuff. And all of a sudden there were 120 people in my house. And I thought like, well, that's fine. But one of the uninvited guests that I didn't know, uh, put a gun to my head about two years later, uh, because he had just, he came he was a gangster. He came to my party uh, uninvited, but, you know, you hang out at a bar in the East Village and, hey, there's a party at this guy's house. Let's all go and stuff, you know. And this guy um, became like a customer of buying uh, half ounce or ounce bags of pot that I had access to. And um, he... I made sure to always meet people in a neutral environment, in a cafe, in a bar, somewhere on the street, never in my house to sh show where you live. But in this one situation, I kind of had started to trust a person and let him in my apartment. Uh, and there, then it happened. The guy put a gun to my head and robbed me uh, blind and stuff. And it was a pretty scary event because... What he did, he handcuffed me, uh, made me lie down and poured a bunch of lighter fuel over me and stood there with the lighter and threatened to set everything on fire if I don't give up all the goods I have, you know, give me all your drugs and money and stuff, you know. So I had probably a, a pound of good pot in the house and five grand in a box somewhere, you know, that I gave up to save my ass and stuff. He took the shit and left and stuff, you know. And then um, I was handcuffed on my back uh, and was there in my house, handcuffed, just gotten robbed, blind. And it was about 5.30 in the afternoon and my friend Kyle Cushman was the photo the the pot editor at high times magazine at the time and i called him up dialed with my chin on one of those old phones and he actually came and rescued me uncuffed me and stuff that's crazy i know uh, a couple other people that have gotten robbed in the, in the past mm -hmm. and uh one of them actually got shot he was mistaken he wasn't even selling like Somebody down the hall was selling weed, and they got the apartments mixed up and came into his oh, house. Lovely, but he had some stuff to do with do with uh, cannabis. So um, he found out a couple of weeks later that it was 
it was meant for the people down the hall. Yeah. But yeah, it, it, that type of shit one thing makes you want to get out of the game and the paranoia of that happening or getting yeah. busted is not a yeah. not an easy thing to take. It's uh, yeah. not for the weak heart. Or the yeah, weak yeah, mind. no, it's like uh, definitely. It was um, probably six years ago. I moved out of here, back out here, just because it was I was growing illegally, and it was so so paranoid. I didn't grow it the last year I was there, and just got tired of smoking weed that wasn't what I grew, and uh, got sick too because it was contaminated weed. I don't know where it, I heard it came from Colorado, and it was all this gorilla glue from Colorado. It's good. Looked good, smelled okay, but when I smoked it, it burned my lungs. That's nasty. Yeah, so and yeah. after smoking three bowls, I ended up coughing a lot and ended up getting bronchitis and threw the wow. rest of it in the trash. Yeah, that's kind of like, um, in a way, one of the good things that um, like you have to have, if you're serious about your smoke, you know, you have to have um, access to good smoke. Either you grow it yourself, which is probably the best idea because then you really know what's up with it. And it'll probably be the best you get anyways or something, you know. Like uh, a lot of people have green thumb. You just have to try it. It's, it's, I've, I started at some point and I was also never uh, grew even a house plant in my life. Um, even my, my mother didn't have many house plants. There was maybe a cactus in the living room or something. You know? Yeah. And I was, fairly uh even paranoid of trying it of like you know being pretty sure be a failure or something but then i did have this contact to the high times guys and stuff and i had met some funny uh, growers in california too some like back then they were the big guy, big guys in la they were have like a pretty big indoor grow place with five, mm -hmm. six grow rooms with like four or 6,000 watts each room and stuff. And I never forgot this one guy. He was saying like, what do you need a bedroom for in your apartment? You know, you make that the grow room you know, and then you sleep on the couch or something. You know? And I came to the point at some point in New York because the rents were always really expensive. And if you lived in Manhattan, you know, everything was always a thousand or two thousand or three thousand dollars and stuff. There was nothing like two hundred or some dollars. It was always like up there, you know, and I was always in the above two thousand dollar range for where I rented and lived. But I made that uh, choice and never regretted it. Uh, that you grow indoors uh, for yourself and your friends, you know, and it worked really well for me. I mean, like I paid those rents for a long period of time. Well, see, I think that. that's the way it should go now is in caregiverships. Like as in caregivers, uh, you can have one person for a group of five people and exactly. they're designated to exactly. grow for these people 
and grow as much as they want exactly. and distribute it. And those people help them yeah. pay for it, yeah. maybe help for the place they live, right. uh, the electric and food, yeah. you know, nothing That's where he's going to live lavishly, just where he makes a living, pays rent, pay the bills. And still support everybody else with their cannabis, you know. Yeah, that's <clears throat> a, that seems a good idea. That would be it'd be good for the community, you know, because those that's a fairly small circle, then they can all know each other and mm -hmm. stuff, you know. And so, like you, grow, yeah, that's like also one of those things. I mean, um, to grow the pot really good, you do. You have to know your shit, you know. It's kind of. Like the more you know, the better. You never learn. You never stop learning, and stuff. And because there is um, natural uh, good ways of growing it without toxic uh, pest pesticides or anything, you can be careful that uh, if you do the growing right, you don't have to um, have pests or critters or uh, uh, fungus on it and stuff, you know, and that should all be uh, understood by everybody. We don't want, you want clean, high quality pot, not uh, some stuff that's like sprayed with what you don't know or critters you don't know or anything. This is, uh, you ingest this, you know, it's already bad enough, you know. So I don't, I don't think consuming on accident a couple little bugs are going to be bad. You'd, be, high, deal, you'd be highly, highly uh, surprised how many bugs are in our canned foods and some of our bad sure. foods that we don't really mm. realize we're eating them all the time. Yeah. Because especially in the U.S., there's a yeah. certain amount of organic material that's not the food that's allowed in there. They're like the larvas, aphids, little tiny bugs that you can hardly see. There, there's some of that on our food, and sure. you don't really notice it, especially yeah. if you grow in a garden. You know, you see the yeah. little bugs all over the place, and yeah. some of the outdoors. I've I've found little bugs on some of the outdoor. Sure. You know, they just get caught up in the bug, the yeah, stickiness, sure. and they get trapped there. Uh, yeah. Some of them will break down actually mm -hmm. because of the sun, the UVs. Yeah. But then some of the hard shell ones, yeah. you might get like a, a shell of a a locust or a, yeah. a grasshopper or something in yeah. there, but you can take those and a lot of people with outdoors will dip them and clean them and spray them down with uh, mm. cleaners. Yeah. There's certain types of cleaners, uh, yeah. rain, just like hydrogen yeah. peroxide or yeah. a good rain yeah. mimics hydrogen peroxide. That's why they right. say taking a little hydrogen peroxide, put it in water. Right. It's like rainwater. It, it right. will help clean it and disinfect yeah. it and it's good for it. That might be a good thing to do for like outdoor crops to uh, especially like down here where we're talking about the San Juan Valley where you've got these strong dust storms there's mm -hmm. always a bunch of stuff in the air uh, if there's a good uh, safe way to like you know dip them in some cleaning solution and stuff you know I've heard I've not, I haven't seen it myself but I've heard when they do it the water gets uh, dirty looking pretty quick yeah we've and I've seen some people take big plants in a 55 yeah. gallon yeah. bucket of water and they yeah. dip it in there um, maybe with the hydrogen peroxide yeah. without just to clean off the, yeah. the residues and whatever right. is blown yeah. on it because some of that can fail a a, yeah. uh, a test yeah. of microbes or of yeah. contamination heavy metals thanks I've heard that happening. But yeah, some of the heavy metal testing and some of the other stuff is 
over regulated in some states. I believe some of the natural occurring chemicals, like uh, I believe one of them they look for is going to be a natural forming of strychnine or something like that, which mm. is also in the seeds of apples. Uh-huh. So some people say that eating the seeds of apple is actually good for you and because it's anti-cancerous, the- but then yeah. you could read that it has a strychnine, a form of strychnine that's naturally occurring in the seed yeah. itself. Yeah. But that same one can be fail uh, yeah. a heavy metals test in cannabis plant. Yeah. So is that actually going to be bad for you? Because it's some people say yes, some people say no. Like the other arsenic is known to be uh, not good for you, proven it can give you cancer. But no, I mean I guess there are definitely uh, things that need to be fine tuned uh, over the. Um, the legal period that they uh, find a way of how have a more fair taxation and um, have like a a more sense making uh, control mechanism with all this test that uh, this also, um, you know, is for the benefit of the consumer and not to um, enrich some kind of testing business or something. Uh, mm. uh, these yeah. things will probably be fine-tuned. I think um, it's good. I, per, I mean, we never cared in the old days, really. I mean, you or we would say, well, but w- we would prefer the pot to be grown in an organic way or something, you know, that you, like, meaning avoid... Um, as many bad things as possible, uh, which one of them would be to use just salt fertilizer because it's the easiest way to do it and mm-hmm. stuff. You know, if you adopt and learn an organic way to grow, that's then definitely a better tasting pot than to just grow with like mineral salts. Mm-hmm. And um, the pesticides and herbicides are the worst, especially uh, pesticides indoor and outdoor. Outdoor people spray herbicides on them too to keep other yeah, herbs down too. That's and terrible. Yeah. Those are really what will mess up your lung because a lot of the testing, from what I heard, of consuming those and being approved by the uh, governing factors, FDA probably in this case in America they tested the consumption on food and people eating it, not inhaling it on something like in a tobacco form or in a cannabis form. Like those pesticides will go straight to your lungs and are more yeah. bioavailable to your body. <clears throat> yeah, sure. And make you sicker quicker. Yeah. <clears throat> so back to Germany. I think they're about to legalize and be the first one in Europe to go fully legal, right? Have you been keeping I'm, up on that or not? <clears throat> I'm not so entirely sure about Europe, but um, Spain is another place where there is a big uh, marijuana scene because they have some kind of lax law situation that Mm -hmm. uh, some kind of thing where you, um, if you don't know 
and you don't tell, then it's not a problem or yeah. something. So I lived uh, in Spain for 12 years. Oh, you know that. When yeah. I lived, where I lived, it was mm -hmm. on the north coast in the center. It was called Santander in Cantabria. That's nice. And it, yeah. it was a little uh, more conservative. Uh-huh. Right. So it wasn't like that. And I, yeah. I worked in a restaurant for a little bit, had a, an owner who was a, a national police. Uh -huh. He was like part owner and... Mm -hmm. He was there for the interview, and I said, "Oh yeah, what about marijuana and this?" And he said, "As it is it legal?" And he said, "Well, if you if you grow at home mm -hmm. for yourself, oh, we're not okay. going to bother you. Right. But if you're out distributing it, then yeah. it becomes an offense. Right. But right. if you go to like the next province over where <clears throat> Bilbao and, and uh, the Guggenheim is, mm -hmm. and that borders France, that's mm -hmm. a whole another story. Like you can right. get hash like yeah. right next to the police department. The police uh -huh. department doesn't you can, they right. don't really care." Barcelona on the East Coast, that's a whole other story. That's yeah. like where uh, Spanibus was, I believe. Yeah. And uh, they celebrate Spanibus and have yeah. an expo there yeah. every year. Yeah. And yeah, I've been there um, like two nights and didn't have any herb, walked down the beach. And uh, it was constantly people uh, giving out flyers for the late night scene. Uh, there's a light show DJ here right. and this and like handing them out and like as they were handing it like marijuana oh. ecstasy ecstasy <laughs> you know yeah. I was like oh there did you he go. turn so marijuana mm, funny I was mm. like how much quanto mm. we oh yeah come with me follow me mm. and uh walk down the pathway and he'd reach into the the bushes mm. and just pull out a bag ready mm. here you go bend the elders 20 euros yeah. I was like okay back to the hotel Yeah, I know um, not too much about the German cannabis legalization efforts. I do know that the efforts have been going on forever and nothing would ever really change in Germany. And it was still um, illegal more recently and stuff. But I think... There's some more movement happening now because they have a more newer government uh, in Germany now uh, mm -hmm. and they um, promised their voters certain changes in the drug policies and they were actually really pressured to get something going And I think they did. They made some new um, laws uh, regarding um, the cannabis. The, it was really bad. I mean, it was there with heroin at, at number one schedule or whatever. And yeah, like that. here in America. Yeah. So uh, you could in, get in really bad trouble like during the time period when I grew up, like in the 70s or something. Man, even for a small amount, people got in so much trouble and stuff. And uh, so it was only around in the big cities also. So yeah, I uh, have been talking to a couple of people in Spain. When I got there, where I lived, nobody grew. There was uh, a couple of seed shops. And it was legal to sell seeds, but I didn't. I couldn't find any green herb. It was all hash. Mm. <clears throat> uh, Morocco right. or uh, it's only a couple hundred Barcelona. miles away yeah, yeah so they yeah. would uh, have a lot of hash smoking with tobacco like you said they yeah. would roll it up with tobacco and I didn't like mm. it that way so I mm. smoked hash out of a little pipe yeah, little hash pipe it treated me well but uh, 
met a Canadian who had a Northern Lights mother mother plant that was probably six foot tall and we were cutting 50 clones off at the time taking them to Bilbao and they would sell them out of the store and clones and like it was nothing mm. so uh we got a little plan I got another apartment I had another room and we put up 12 plants there and it was the first time I sat up and grew and uh it was pretty cool it was liberating to be able to grow your own weed and I ended up teaching a couple other people. So now when mm-hmm. I go back, there's at least six or seven growers in that town. Mm-hmm. And they're, it's pretty easy to find herb. Mm-hmm. And it's a whole different scene. And they, they're saying they're just waiting for Germany to legalize. And then the rest of Europe will probably follow follow suit just right. because a lot of them look up to Germany as being the economic leader in, in the European Union and very efficient and don't do too many idiotic things. <laughs> so they, they follow Tracha, along yeah. with them. Yeah. Even though like in a, the, the good weather for growing is more uh, south of the Alps. If you uh, go like Spain is probably a good place to mm-hmm. grow. You they know. used to grow a lot of tobacco they, in the south. Yeah. you know, It's just and a water, then, water thing there in the south. Now more rain. than ever. Right. In the it's north like, where I lived, it's it was like it, rained, new, it rained a lot. Too much then. Too or much, something. probably. Yeah. Um, That's a beautiful area, though. I like that northern I, Spain there. I north of northern Italy, in the mountains there, yeah. in Switzerland. Yeah. There's going to be yeah. some good places to grow some mountain herbs. Yeah, I mean, uh, I guess the climate has always changes and stuff, too. So I guess they getting some more warmer weather, summers... In Northern Europe as well, you know, where they have like a good two, three month period where they have like, you know, be above 80 or something, you know, and be good for growing. Mm-hmm. But um, that's the beautiful you, thing about cannabis, though. You can have different varieties that grow that, better uh, in certain areas. True. It's a little cooler. Totally. And yeah. a little more yeah. sunlight or true. more longer days. They have yeah. varieties that will go good. And then that's when it comes yeah. to. The regional yeah. cannabis, like I think in California, they're starting to get something, uh, region terroir. I can't remember the, mm. the saying, mm. but it's going to be kind of like the grapes grown in terroir. southern France. Yeah. Right. And they get them certified. These are yeah. Yeah. grapes from this area yeah. locally, and that will be their regional yeah. um, touristic attraction when people travel there. They could get this regional herb, and I think maybe the south of France and some of north of northern Spain would be really good places to grow too. Oh yeah, the south of France for sure, definitely. Like in the Pyrenees, that's like uh, in Germany too. That's where the Dutch come from, or the mm-hmm. the um, the Amish. My my brothers family came from east of the Rhine before there was uh-huh. east and west Germany. Uh-huh. It was just a Germanic land. It wasn't actually Germany and Holland and different countries there. But when her ancestors moved to America. I so, think in and now Europe, they were all farmers and it was just farmland. In Europe, it's still really popular Uh, with the hash because they have these old traditional production places in North Africa where 
like they are still making a big production every year. You know, there's like in for for outdoor growers in north in Europe, in Spain, and I think especially in Spain during the summer, all the pollen of the Moroccan cannabis plants goes up in the air and lands in Spain and <laughs> pollinates everything. You know. Not uh, that would be crazy. No, this is like something that happens, you know, to the dismay of these guys that yeah, are that's growing, a, you know. That's an issue at Area 422 or yeah, any place you grow outdoors. They're strict. Like, if you have males, you got to cut your males down. Yeah. But in these areas where yeah. you're talking about, they just yeah. throw them out there and let themselves pollinate right. each other yeah. and probably yeah. make the hash with the male. Yeah. I don't know in how far, like, in the long run, that would be a thing that should be improved, I guess, you know, that they also start to be considerate about, you know, people in other areas are growing and don't want that. I think know? it was an issue in Oklahoma, too, when they started growing. There was right. a lot of, lot of right. uh, grows, and um, it attracted a lot of bugs. There was a big influx of aphids, and oh, right. uh, it created new infestation mm. problems. Uh-huh. of different types of bugs migrating and having a large food source. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, like, I'd, th- there's what, what else would I like to say about um, the growing the pot? I mean, I think, um, like, I could do it pretty good, but I think it's, like, a lot of work. It turned out to be, like, a lot of work, you know, because... Like if you don't put in the work, you get these things like uh, problems with pests, you know, or mm-hmm. like any kind of these problems only always come up if you don't pay attention enough. Yeah, the new so, term is dialed in. If you got it dialed in, meaning dialed you know in. what you're yeah. doing, right. fine tune, you know what right. to prevent, you know <clears throat> what to feed it, the timing, what light how to cure it, how to dry it, how to do everything. Yeah. You got to dial it in. Yeah. And it's really hard to do, especially the larger you go. Yeah. And some people would blame me of being right. against large corporate grows, but I'm not. It's just, I feel that the quality goes down. But if they got it dialed in and know what they're doing, there can be some successful large grows, yeah. which yeah. that's hard to do. But if you got the right amount of people, yeah. the right setup and like you said, you pay your workers and they can make a living. And that's hard. Earlier mm-hmm. you mentioned like making a living off of it. A lot mm-hmm. of these larger places don't want to pay people that know what they're doing. Yeah. They just t- pay them to follow orders right. and they run out of green thumbs and just find yeah. people that want to have a green thumb, but don't have it. And it ends up not turning out as a good thing. So that's the main thing is it's hard to find a quality grower and paying well, which gets back to the fact people want to grow their own because they're not getting respected or paid enough to grow, grow it for somebody else. I find it to be a, a very common problem in the industry right now. Yeah, no, this is a, uh, uh, during the growth process, the, the more every single plant can be um, monitored, and supervised or something you always basically uh you kind of ideally want to look 
every once every day or once every other day um, below every single plant to see what's going on if every if there is nothing weird going on and stuff you know yeah. so if you have like a thousand plants in a space or something you know this is somebody needs to be like uh at least once a week be bowing down in every plant to kind of look and or yeah. clean it a little bit and stuff. It's hard you know? for one person to grow and, 50 plants. Right, you know. And it high quality and taking care of everything. It becomes all the too time. much for one person, you know. It's like the, I don't know, yeah. That's kind of like what I did when I was growing. I was a, kind of around, uh, maybe use four lights and have about 50 plants. And then you have some uh, area where you can keep some other plants. So you can have like a healthy cloning practice yeah. that can give you some extra income, can help some friends with giving some, them some clones. And um, that's like um, all good. But then, you know, ultimately, um, I like to have the good growers grow, grow the pot. And then if you decide to be a grower, you kind of should be doing it 100% and stuff. Mm -hmm. And then you'll get somewhere. It could be tedious. And it's like having children or a pet. It's hard to travel and you can't leave them for too long. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I tried to get, I got mine set up where I only have to see them every three or four days now. Yeah. I can't give them all the inspection I'd like all the time. So I have to prevent a lot. Yeah. And things happen. So. Yeah. It's it's not an easy easy task, and I salute to everybody out there doing it that can do it well and keep doing it. It looks nice in your one space though, where the plants have these big uh, containers. What's that? Thirty gallons or something? Fifty gallon pot. Fifty gallon pot, and then they have like a nice space to spread out in there. That mm-hmm. seems like a good thing to do. Yeah, it's easier too for mm-hmm. me. It's called no till gardening. Yeah, so right. um, it's cheaper i'm recycling the, the dirt only buying some new uh amendments mm-hmm. to top dress them and yeah. to feed them right. using some fertilizers uh from build a soil and fermented plant extracts this time right. around right. so it's uh it's easier because i don't have to water them every two days mm-hmm. i can water them that's more true. and then i come right. back in four days Right, and it's pushing it every three days. Like, mm-hmm. But if I got uh, five to seven gallon pots, especially mm-hmm. cloth pots here at this mm-hmm. humidity, mm-hmm. every two days you have to water them. Right, that's like a real very low humidity area around here, mm-hmm. and you really it really makes such a big difference. I mean, you water something, and after two days or something, it's like dry or so. You know. Um, yeah, and I don't like to automatically irrigate because if you're not here and something happens just a little, mm-hmm. little tiny hose pops off and they say you know your whole floor is flooded and then you come yeah, in yeah. and you're that standing rem- in water it reminds me of people die that way too i've heard of people dying like the yeah. floor floods and yeah. they touch an electrical cord and on that water and actually they electrocute them it really strikes a chord with the uh, watering systems um, having lived and grown in apartments for 20 years, I can't tell you how many times my downstairs neighbors came running up the stairs and 
pound on my door. There's a lot of water coming down. <laughs> a lot of water. <laughs> I go like, one time I live above a pizzeria and I had this like 100 gallon reservoir that needed to be sometimes refilled out of the other 100 gallon reservoir with the reverse osmosis water. Mm-hmm. And I would have like a huge pump and a thing and it still would take 10 minutes to pump 100 gallons. So I would always manage to walk away from that. And when that pump flipped the hose, flipped out of the thing or whatever the <laughs> fuck happened, it made like a major flood above this pizzeria. It was amazing. And it was like the pizzeria that was the closest to the first precinct, which is the main police headquarters in Manhattan in New York. You know, and so like, these guys just like, the pizza guy said to me, you know how many cops come to like have pizza here every day? <laughs> So we're like doing a nice 50 plant garden upstairs, you know, and this is the irrigation water that's raining down on you. But nothing, nothing like this ever happened to me. I never got busted like that. We had like close calls though, where, where you somehow find out through the super that there is some kind of inspection or repair thing or something where they need to have access to your space. Mm-hmm. And that's like, then of course, you know, all of a sudden, like you try to cram 50 plants into like a square yard or something, mm-hmm. you know, and make that nobody notice it. So, you know. Well, I had that, that six foot mother plant in the middle of uh, downtown Santander in Spain where I lived. Mm. And, Carrying in a van, I had to take a trash bag and put it over the top, carry it down the street, yeah. carry it up the store. And then same thing happened. Oh, inspection. In a hurry, I had to take it down. No trash bag and run it down the street. This huge-ass fucking cannabis plant, like Sunday morning at 4 o'clock in the morning or something. There's nobody out. But it's trying to get it into the it's van and fiction. take it somewhere else. It was it's a good fiction. Yeah, it would have been a... It was frantic. And I think every grower has been... In that situation, especially if they rented, they had to take everything down within yeah. 24 hours, right. find another place to put it or store it someplace for a little bit, and then bring it back and put it all back up. <laughs> yeah, I've done that before. It's not fun. But hey, Andre, it was a great pleasure having you come on the show and tell everybody some of these great stories. And I highly salute you for all the pictures and keeping up the legacy when it was during the prohibition days and New York city and it risking your neck. Thank you. Thank you too for having, and then, um, yeah, we're having a good situation here on the 26th. We're going to be hanging out at the area for 20 in Moffat mm-hmm. and continue the, um, exchange of, uh, cannabis knowledge. I just actually um, had a new um, how to start growing cannabis book with a photo of mine on the cover in the mail a couple of days ago. So that's always kind of... Which one was it? It's um, it's on my latest Instagram post. A-G-R-O-S 55. Agros 55. Um 
by this uh, um, Canadian publisher. Um, damn, what is the name again? Green Candy Publishers out of Canada. They have a, a Grow 101 uh, book and is have a nice one of those Kyle Cushman purple uh, plants. That you know that one is a very uh, popular uh, image. So if you find an unusual looking pot plant. You can really do something with the photo like that, but it needs to be un- unusual. You know? Yeah, the one picture you're talking about with the purple before. With it the was purple. A, then it went like the High Times cover of the year or High yeah, Times right, cover. Yeah, right. They had like a photography special and then it was on the cover of that and it was on the cover of the Sunday magazine in 1995. And um, I've really, this is a photo where. Every, if every photo, you know, one could actually um, drive like a mid-size family car or something, you know, but um, it's just rare, you know, that you land like something big and profitable. But you keep trying, you know, and then you diversify. You do like little things here and there, you know. Yeah. You do some of this and some of that, and or maybe uh, we uh, uh, work together, you know, and find uh, ways to do it. This is uh, that sounds interesting with your mushroom job, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah, that's, that's the new uh, photography, photographic uh, future too. Is the, with the mushrooms and one of my favorites is the time lapse and they're so, they're so quick to right. grow in three That's interesting. four days yeah, and you right. can like take the time lapse right. instead and of looks, taking the time lapse of a cannabis that, plant to like months you know like, yeah that's oh, man, really it takes dedication yeah that's a good uh, idea actually to do that yeah and then Not watch that. them pop up and then you put yeah. them in and they come back down it's right. really cool to watch I like that a lot okay let's eat some mushrooms <laughs> They are legal here now, so that is actually something's coming up uh, in the near future that um, that photography is going to be possible. There's so many different strains coming out now, and they're everywhere. Mm. And uh, you can get them pretty much. They're not for sale anywhere, but if you go to the right place, people are are gifting them all the time. Mm. So um, I got some gifted to me the other day. If you'd like one, you're more than welcome to have some. Thank you. Good show. Hey, thank you for tuning in, everyone. Tune in again next week, and we'll have another special guest. Thank you. Peace and love. Once again, this episode was brought to you by Area 420 in Moffitt, Colorado, and the train cars. They will be holding events all summer long, starting on May 26th with a barbecue kicking off the season, followed up on June 10th with a seed and genetics fair. There are still spaces available for vendors. If you're interested, make sure to contact Mountain Valley Events and Brainstrap. All links will be found in the description. Let them know you heard it on Reefer of the Reefer with Little Farmer. Thanks for tuning in. Yeah.
call him Dr. Earth. For the healing meditation and good vibration. For food, fuel, vibe, and a little bit of fun. See, the joint ain't necessarily the point, but I want 